On this week's edition of New York Now, the leader of the state's Democratic Party is under fire for comments related to the Buffalo mayoral race. That comes as Rita Glavin, the attorney for former Governor Andrew Cuomo, continues to defend him against sexual harassment allegations. Then, New York is still working on an adult-use cannabis program. Later, we'll talk about the future of New York's workforce when it comes to education and cell phone coverage in upstate New York. I'm Daryl Camp, and this is New York Now. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Daryl Camp, in for Dan Clark. Earlier this year, India Walton defeated incumbent Byron Brown in the Democratic primary for mayor in Buffalo, but the race is not over yet as Brown has not dropped out. When asked this week about endorsing a candidate in that race, State Democratic Party Chair Jay Jacobs made headlines with his answer, which included an analogy involving David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, that led to calls for his resignation. Meanwhile, Rita Glavin, attorney for former Governor Andrew Cuomo, Hochul's predecessor, released a 153-page document this week disputing the findings of an August report from Attorney General Letitia James on sexual misconduct allegations against Cuomo. So now to break down those stories, we have David Lombardo from Capitol Press Room. Thanks for being here, Dave. It's my pleasure. So what did Jay Jacobs say and is the reaction warranted? People are calling for his resignation and a lot of people are saying he's not fit to lead the party now. So Jacobs made a very poor analogy comparing David Dukes as an outsider in a generic metaphorical election and making a comparison to India Walton. And I think in the grand scheme of things, we can all move past this pretty quickly because it's a typical unforced error by Jay Jacobs, who finds himself getting in trouble when he speaks sometimes. And he's a shrewd political mind, but maybe not the best person to do public relations for the New York State Democratic Party. And the calls for his resignation are not surprising, considering that they're coming from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and they have no love for Jacobs to begin with. The thing that I find really interesting here is the endorsements that Walton's been getting. Just uh, recently, we saw U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer get off the fence and endorse Walton, who is the Democratic Party candidate. But we have yet to hear, and we may never hear, an endorsement from Governor Kathy Hochul, where you know she comes from mm -hmm. Buffalo. And I think this really represents the challenge that she has moving forward, because Byron Brown, while not the Democratic Party candidate, is sort of the Democratic establishment in that race. And India Walton represents the up upcoming progressive wing. And these are two wings of the party that she's trying to uh, attract as she looks for her own uh, Democratic nomination next year. So I think short of picking one side, she's just sitting on her hands and hoping that you know, that is the least uh, detrimental to her future chances as you know, getting a full term as governor. So what it could take for the governor to make an endorsement in this race is enough political pressure or if yeah. it hurt her. But as of right now, according to a recent poll, she's doing fine. Yeah, a Siena Research Institute poll came out this week and it looked at uh, registered voters and it showed us that Democrats, who are her base essentially, considering that she needs Democrats to become governor, considering the overwhelming advantage uh, that they have in enrollment, Democrats support her in terms of her job approval. She has a net favorability rating after less than two months on the job, with the caveat that there are a sizable number of New Yorkers who have yet to form an opinion. And, and that poll also looked at a couple different 
horse races that we might see in the Democratic primary next June, uh, one with a very crowded field that included uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo, who I think is unlikely to run, but that in, in that race she was winning, as well as a heads-up matchup between her and Attorney General Letitia James, a Brooklyn Democrat who's flirted with a run but hasn't actually made any commitment. She has given no promise rings out to anyone. But Governor Hochul was leading in that matchup, too. So I think if I'm Governor Kathy Hochul and I look at uh, this Siena poll, I have to feel pretty good about myself. Granted, there's uh, a chance for, for movement over the next eight months. Anything could happen. And a poll of likely Democratic primary voters could shake things up as well. But yeah, she's got to feel comfortable about where she is. Now, speaking of A.G. James, everything here is connected. Mm -hmm. The report that she released in August is being disputed again by Rita Glavin, former Governor Andrew Cuomo's attorney. She had a press conference and released a 153-page document. To be fair, I only had time to skim that this week. But does she have a case as far as amending the AG's report, or is the governor just having a hard time saying goodbye to yesterday? I mean, it's the latter. It doesn't matter if the attorney general amends her report. There's not going to be a do-over on the governor's resignation. I think we need to think about who is the audience for these repeated appearances by Rita Glavin, as well as the governor's uh, still press person, Rich as a party, the, the last man on the ship still. Uh, the governor, I think, is on just a PR uh, overhaul, a makeup campaign for himself. And I think that's all about what he wants to do for his future. So this isn't about getting reinstated. This is about his long-term future, because I think this is someone who has a life that's only existed in politics, and if he wants to have any sort of political future, whether that's running for election in the future or whether that's just being involved in politics, he needs to have a, a, a just complete campaign overhaul, and that's what we're seeing with these repeated appearances. Well, Dave, we could talk about this for hours and hours because it's so deep, but we are out of time. I appreciate you being here. My David pleasure. Lombardo from Capitol Press Room. Thanks, Daryl. So, earlier this year, the state legislature moved to legalize recreational adult-use cannabis in New York after previous attempts stalled in the legislature. But with a new addition to our economic landscape comes regulation, standards, and taxes, all of which are being worked out right now. We spoke with Kaylin Kastetter of the Kastetter Cannabis Group to get an update on New York's progress. I am speaking with Kaylin Kastetter of the Kastetter Cannabis Group. We have finally legalized recreational marijuana in New York, but where exactly are we in the process of creating a program? Yeah, so the Cannabis Control Board is, is now fully appointed, and they're going to oversee the Office of Cannabis Management, which will be regulating uh, cannabinoid hemp, adult-use cannabis, and the medical cannabis program. Uh, so it's a very exciting development because, you know, before the uh, medical program and the cannabinoid hemp program, was in um, the uh, Department of Health and didn't have as much resources to really, you know, carry out a full adult use cannabis program. And so now we can start to see um, hiring in the Office of Cannabis Management and regulations actually be developed, um, you know, hopefully for uh, review by the public uh, early next year. So it's exciting because entrepreneurs throughout the state are really waiting to have an opportunity at a multi-billion dollar marketplace and the regulatory structure has to be in place for them to do so. So taking a look at the calendar, how far exactly would you say that we are from having a fully running program in New York State? The first step really is for the board to be formed and uh, for the Office of Cannabis Management to start working on this, right? Um, but I don't think it's going to be less than a year from now before we actually see licenses awarded. 
and um, you know storefronts, cultivators begin operation. Um, that's really almost best case scenario, right? Is that uh, you have regulations developed and there's public comment periods that go through and you know they're settled by the end of spring next year, right? Um, and the state should move pretty quickly to then uh, start to license applicants, especially social equity applicants, small businesses, because they don't really have the luxury of waiting, you know, whether it's sitting on property or, you know, paying employees to, to enter the industry. Um, so best case scenario, if the state moves and has, you know, a mandate from the top to do so, uh, we can see, you know, the industry start and the marketplace start to form next summer, the end of next summer. So for people in business, New York is somewhat known for high regulations, high taxes, mm -hmm. standards and things like that. How do you think regulation will affect the recreational marijuana business, if at all? And that's a that's a huge risk, right? And it's definitely on the table that that happens in New York. They call regulatory capture, where you know the the regulations really make it untenable for small businesses to succeed, right? And the only people who win in those situations are the large corporate cannabis uh, companies, where they have teams of lawyers and they're big enough and they have economies of scale that they can kind of um, you know deal with the, the cost of compliance. Um, but we have really good leadership at the OCM, and I was really pleased to see. Uh, Governor Hochul appoints Chris Alexander as executive director, senior policy advisor Axel Burnaby. I mean, you know, they have been involved in the, the you know policy developments around cannabis for years now, you know, over five years. They understand what it takes to you know balance public safety and also the needs of small businesses. So I'm hopeful. I'm cautiously optimistic that New York you know won't go down that path and have very cost, you know, costly compliance regulations, and also high tax structures. There is a, a tax provision in there, the cultivation tax, which was championed by Governor Cuomo. Uh, that'd be great if the legislature would do away with uh, ahead of, you know, any sort of regulatory rollout. Um, but the, the reality is, is that one of the major goals of the MRTA is to create an equitable cannabis marketplace. And you can't do that without identifying the barriers to entry and working to lower them. One of them is capital. The other one is going to be compliance. Now, how exactly would that tax structure and regulation affect someone who's trying to start a recreational marijuana business in New York? Yeah, so the uh, a very strange uh, tax scheme was put into place at, at kind of the last minute of the MRTA that falls on the cultivation and distribution tier. And what it does is it essentially calculates the amount of milligrams of THC in a product or flower um, and levies a tax. Um, on that product at, at the wholesale level. And the problem with that is that THC levels, especially in flour, can fluctuate throughout the crop. And it's not exact you know, to the milligram. It's really difficult to calculate that. Not only does it create a lot of burdens in terms of having the product tested and figuring out the lots, but also could create an entire mess for tax calculation and collection. Um, it's a lot easier just to look at the other part of the tax structure, which is a retail surcharge of 9.25%. Um, part of which goes back to the municipalities. Uh, you could raise that a few more points or just leave it as it is. And I think that's really going to get you the most simple tax structure. Um, when Governor Cuomo and um, the uh, director of cannabis programs at that time, from Bierenbaum explained why they you know, wanted a THC tax structure, they used the word temperance, terminal temperance, right? Uh, but we're past prohibition. We're past the lies of, you know, uh, reefer madness. So I don't really think we need to be uh, promoting temperance, that we should be looking at public health and making sure that these products are safe and tested. And the last thing I wanted to know is, how will a recreational marijuana program help New York State and the individual New Yorker financially? 
Yeah. What? So beyond the tax revenue that that the implications that come into New York State, which will be significant, the huge thing about creating a new adult use cannabis industry is you are developing opportunities for entrepreneurs and hopefully small business entrepreneurs, just like the craft beverage industry had done um, throughout the state in every single corner of the state, from Niagara Falls and Buffalo and and Brooklyn and Harlem. Uh, I'm in Binghamton right now. And so if the regulations are written in a way that empowers small businesses and allows, you know, a lot of licenses to be awarded, uh, then you're going to see multi tens of billions of dollars worth of economic impact throughout the state. It could revitalize some towns in upstate New York and, like I said, give generational wealth opportunities to communities and, and, and entrepreneurs who have not had that opportunity in any other industry so far. All right. Kaylin Kastetter, the managing director of the Kastetter Cannabis Group. I appreciate your time. As the recreational marijuana industry takes off in New York, one thing growers will need is workers. Last week, we reviewed the future of work as it relates to agriculture. This week, we'll take a look at workforce development. In the past, education has always been linked to filling available jobs, but what is the future of work as it relates to training? Take a look. Workforce development. It's one of the pillars of a healthy economy. And while the state and nation are still trying to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic, the question remains, how? Where are the jobs and do we have enough people to fill them? What is the future of work? One of the major factors in workforce development is education, which comes in many forms from universities to trade schools. But where does the community college fit in? Hudson Valley Community College President Dr. Roger Ramsamy says that the workforce shortage in places like the service industry right now will eventually disappear and lead to new demands of the job market. But what about those new industries that are coming up, such as the elect electric cars, autonomous vehicles, the new ways of building homes, since new homes, people are staying home and working. There are new uh, architectural designs and designs to those buildings and probably a greater need to build, build homes. He says those trends have led to HVCC providing more technical training and trade certifications in recent years. But while community colleges are generally more affordable than a university, there's still a stigma associated with those schools. Melinda Mack, the executive director of the New York Association of Training and Employment Professionals, says that some people view a two-year degree as a sort of step down. I think the stigma sort of exists because this concept of what kind of jobs you should be getting to be able to have a good life and to be able to have a good salary, when in reality, uh, many of those jobs um, are changing. They're just changing, and the nature of the work is changing. When it comes to how work is changing, a recurring theme is automation, which requires more education. SUNY Chancellor Jim Malatris not only oversees four-year schools, but several community colleges within the SUNY system as well. You no longer graduate from high school. You go to a community college or a four-year college or you go get your post-secondary, your master's degree, your PhD, and then you're done. It's not a static point in time. You need to constantly come back and get upskilling. Industries change really fast. Um, technologies change really fast. You, can't, you have to build into our structure a process where it's easy for individuals to go into the workforce and then come back and then go into the workforce. Malatris says higher education hasn't really addressed that need, but the future of work depends on meeting those demands through training. Dr. Steady Mono, the president of SUNY Schenectady, says that's a part of the value of community colleges. If the country is going to recover from the pandemic, 
not only from the pandemic, but be the force in terms of workforce, it has to be the community colleges. And that is why at the national level, there are conversations right now about the role of community colleges and that community colleges need to be supported in a very robust way. But while educators say higher education, including community colleges, will play a critical role in recovering from the pandemic and meeting workforce demands for the future, a lot of schools are seeing a drop in enrollment. Here's Malatris again. You do see challenges in enrollment all across the country. SUNY is not immune from declines in enrollment. Our enrollment has been declining for about 10 years. It has sped up a little bit because of COVID. I think people just said, we're going to wait this out and see what goes on. Some people don't pursue higher education because they can't afford to. That's something Melinda Mack says can be addressed via trade schools, which can get someone on the path to a new career. You have to be able to link the pathways together so that if you go to a trade school, or if you go to BOCES, or if you go to a voc tech program or a workforce development program, that those then lead you into a community college or for your institution. So you're not having to re repeat the, the work you've already done. Ram Sammy, the community college president, says that down the line, the future of work will rely on people responding to the needs of their own communities. That's been the case in the past as well. But now there are new industry demands. If the kids who are coming into a 3D construction building or offshore well, offshore uh, wind energy program, though we can give them the opportunity to generate their, their own small business that can eventually grow into something and grow back the industries that would draw more people to want to work in their industries. And while many industries in the state are facing a workforce shortage, Malatra says more investment in higher education could be a solution. You go to Hudson Valley Community College and you look at that advanced manufacturing center they have, it is state of the art. That's what our students deserve. So we need more investments like that. And if you can do those bigger on scale, we can do more. Nursing's another area. We have a shortage nationally in nursing. We have a shortage in the state of New York on nursing. We can't meet current demand as it is. We need more space to train more nurses. Regardless of what field someone decides to pursue, Melinda Max says there's a pathway to get where you'd like to go. And if they can afford it and make it work, that can be their future of work. I also just want to say, I think that anyone can sort of do anything, honestly. The, the challenge is being realistic about the time frame, right? If you have less than a high school diploma, it's going to take you a lot longer to become a surgeon than if you already have a four-year degree, have all your bio credits done, et cetera. You can certainly go into healthcare starting off in a nursing degree or starting off in a, in a nursing assistant position and work, move your way up into a, a much more prestigious position or role. While individual pathways may vary, it seems that accessible, affordable, and quality education for the ever-evolving workforce is one of the pillars of the future of work. For New York Now, I'm Daryl Camp in Albany. So only time will tell exactly what the demands of the workforce will be in the future. Speaking of workforce demands, one thing required for many jobs today is connectivity. That is something that Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara, the chair of the Commission on Rural Resources, is taking a look at when it comes to service for cell phones. Our Dan Clark spoke with him about what can be done to build more infrastructure. Assemblymember Angelo Santa Barbara, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, great to be on the show again, Dan. Of course. So we're talking about something that is so important in upstate New York. It's cell coverage. And I know to people watching, they might be like, oh, why, why do we care about that? I probably have service at my house in the city of Albany or even maybe your rural community has service. But imagine driving up 87 to Lake George for the weekend and you get into a car wreck and then you can't call 911. So now we have this upstate cellular coverage task force. It was established in 2019. 
it's just released a report in early October or late September about what can really be done about this. So let's start with what is the status of cell coverage in upstate New York right now? Uh, well, part of the part of the task force, uh, one of the initiatives uh, that uh, they were uh, tasked with doing is uh, actually measuring that and finding out where we had coverage and where we didn't have coverage uh, because there was some dispute uh, when you over where coverage is good and where it wasn't good and where it was non-existent and uh, part of it was actually measuring, going out and measuring with devices where service was available and where there, there wasn't any service and uh, you know cell companies will say oh you have service, we have the coverage areas and we see these maps but then you go out into those areas and you can't make a call. So part of what we needed to do here was figure out figure that out. Uh, yeah. So uh, what we saw is, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the blue areas of, on the report, a 71 page report, you see that there's a lot of areas, of, especially in upstate, uh, that do not have coverage, more than 2,000 miles of roadway with zero coverage, not counting the actual rural communities where there are, there's no cell service in those areas. As you said, you know, can you imagine being in your home or living somewhere? Landlines are almost a thing of the past right now. Yeah. But not being able to make a call or having to travel to make a call. And if it's an emergency, how do you do that? That was part of what this task force uh, was designed to address to come up with solutions to overcome those obstacles. And some of those landlines now need electricity. So if you lose your power and it's an emergency, there's not really much you can do there. So. I guess my question is, is it just that we don't have the infrastructure in these areas without the cell service? Because I think most of us know we get cell coverage from towers. At least I think that's still how it works. <laughs> so do we just not have that infrastructure in place to provide this coverage in a more universal way? Well, there's a number of things. The towers uh, are needed. You need the towers to get the service, no doubt about it. Uh, there are obstacles uh, that were uh, described in the report, uh, some of them being regulatory. Uh, just going through a process that takes anywhere from six months to two years for a single application, uh, which seems outrageous for something we're trying to deploy quite quickly here. Mm -hmm. uh, so part of the report addresses streamlining that process. A lot of it is duplicative, uh, multiple agencies reviewing the same exact thing. There's no need for that. Uh, and coming up with a way to, uh, to streamline that process is important, but also access to the land. Yeah. Uh, having the property to do it. Uh, so the report talks about uh, having access to state lands and right-of-ways. Uh, and then there's always, there's, there's an environmental piece that goes into this. Those large towers that you just mentioned uh, are an area of concern uh, for environmental areas uh, that are protected or uh, have uh, strict regulations of what can and cannot be developed. When you develop a cell tower, we see the tower, but there's a lot of site development that needs to happen, infrastructure around the tower itself. Right. The report recommends putting cell coverage in certain areas. So we're not talking about universal cell coverage like uh, in the rural areas of the Adirondack Park, for example. Um, you want to put it on interstate and U.S. highways, New York State highways, and larger uh, mainstream county roads. And that's going to cost, the report estimates, $610 million. Tell me where we get the money. The, uh, well, the money obviously has to come from the state budget. Uh, you know, the, the, the new New York broadband program was a program that uh, we invested in. Uh, we put that, that incentive out there. Uh, part of what we need to do is, is incentivize uh, th this development of this infrastructure. Uh, and I think leveraging the, the public-private partnership, that's done with making the investment. And I think that investment does have to be made. Uh, what you said is right. This report, I look at it as a... It's not a silver bullet where it's going to solve all our problems. There are a lot of rural areas uh, that communities that don't have 
service. This report talks about that, but it, it says as an initial step here, let's make this investment to cover our major roadways where you can get on a roadway and make a call if you need to. Yeah, in fact, when you look at broadband across the state as well, the FCC has done reports on this, there are areas of the state that have cell coverage but not broadband. And that became really, really important during the pandemic for people that uh, either had their kids going to school, but they didn't have broadband. So now they're using their cell phone as a hotspot. So thank goodness they have that cell coverage. And yeah, there's a, there's a mix out there of what's available. And that's part of, you know, part of what this report talked about too is, you know, if you have one, you should probably have the other. Uh, there's a way to merge this uh, infrastructure. Uh, to, to, if we have some infrastructure out there that offers broadband, we can use that similar, that same infrastructure, uh, sort of a shared service uh, to be able to provide both. Both are important, you know, uh, and I think that, you know, we, we need to look at this, you know, years ago, they ran electric electricity and telephone lines to every house. They needed to do that. Uh, we need to look at these services the same way that they were looked at back then. This is essential. We got to get it out there. This is not just playing games on the Internet. This is yeah. education. This is telehealth. This is work at home. You know, this, the, the, we have to change the conversation. This is really something that's a public utility. It needs, we need to look at it that way. And I think the new policies going forward need to treat it as such. Well, we'll see what happens in the state budget. I imagine that it will probably have support because this is, as you said, pretty important nowadays. So we'll see how it shakes out. Uh, it's a top issue for me, uh, certainly uh, in, in, in the rural areas I represent, and I think all of upstate is, is the most impact here. So I think upstate communities uh, sort of got over, have been overlooked in, in, in uh, lacking these services. It's time to address them. Uh, and now as we we're talking about rebuilding back uh, post-pandemic, uh, we need to really look at how do we do that. We've got to address the things that were highlighted and things that were overlooked in the past uh, that need attention now. And I'm hope hopeful with our, our new governor, I have written a letter uh, to her. I'm hopeful that this will get on her radar and it will get done uh, in the next session, starting with the, the investment we need in the state budget. All right, we'll look forward to seeing it. Assemblymember Angela Santa Barbara, thank you so much. Thank you, great to be here. How much money will the state set aside for cell service infrastructure? We won't really know until early next year. But for now, that's all the time we have. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week.